Welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dave Hallahan. And guys, this is the last episode of 2019. At least the last full episode. I might have a few like fun ideas floating in my head that may or may not come to fruition. But what a year it's been. I started this podcast in February 28th. February 28th was when the intro episode was put out there. And since then, this podcast has been listened to over 3,000 times. And that's awesome. I had no idea what to expect. Um, but suffice it to say that I am pleasantly surprised by the reactions and by the feedback that has been given to me from you. Just what this has meant to me for this year. It's been a fun journey. You guys have kind of been with me as I've gone through a lot, whether you've known it or not. This podcast has helped me to process a lot of those things. I've had a lot of fun conversations along the way, and today is no different. Since it's the end of the year and we're going to go a few weeks without an episode, I'm not going to ask you to join Patreon or tell you about anything else that we're doing. I'm just going to tell you about this episode. This episode is with Jason Soshinek, who is the founder and director of Project 619, which, as they describe themselves on their website, is a movement designed to empower people to live out relationship in a way which brings true life centered on Christ. And they deal a lot with uh, biblical sexual ethics. They differentiate themselves from uh, a purity movement or the purity movement from the 90s and 2000s. And Jason will explain some of that in this podcast and he'll elaborate on what they do. But uh, I have taken in a lot of wisdom from Jason and uh, others like Walt Mueller. Uh, Jason, I was introduced to him through the CPYU uh, Youth Matters, Youth Culture Matters podcast, and then have looked into Project 619, some of the resources that they have there, but really appreciate and respect all that they're doing there. And I think that you will learn to respect and appreciate what they're doing as well. So here is my conversation with Jason Soshinik of Project 619. Project 619, uh, obviously something very uh, near and dear to you as you are the uh, executive director and founder of that. So why don't you just share a little bit of about you, your story personally, but how that led to uh, Project 619 and what it is you guys are doing over there. Yeah, absolutely. So Project 619, uh, it, it birthed out of really my own story. Uh, I was uh, sexually active, 16 to 21, made a choice to start over. Part of that choice was uh, recommitting my life to following Jesus. I, um, in that process, realized one of the things that was getting in the way most often uh, in my walk um, was uh, my relationship with women um, and the way, one, I treated them, but also the way that I um, really used that as a platform to feel better about myself and and really, in, in some ways, it was a religion. And I made a choice at 21 to recommit my life to the Lord and knew that one of the things that I needed to do was spend time diving into scripture, really understanding mm. 
what is it that uh, God would say about this? I know that I've been in youth group. I know that I've, I've been to church and it's like, don't have sex. But I was like, that, that just doesn't fit with me. And I just want to know whether or not scripture actually has anything to say about it. So uh, I poured into the the material. I, I really, um, uh, not material, I dived into scripture and spent right. years just studying the Bible. And I went from uh, beginning to end multiple times. I just looked through it and I, I came to a conclusion that there is something very rich uh, around the conversations of sex and sexuality. So I just, I, I, I made a choice based upon what I found in scripture to wait um, and wait until marriage. And, um, uh, wait until I got married at 34 and the ministry just kind of birthed out of that story. I, uh, was working in advertising and marketing and, uh, was asked to share at uh, a gathering of, uh, it was older peers speaking to younger peers about choosing to wait to have sex. And I shared my story and then I got asked to share the story again. Then I got asked to share the story again. And then before I knew it, I was doing school assemblies hmm. and, um, I, I just realized like this was where the Lord was leading. He wanted to use my story and ultimately through many, many different, uh, uh paths and, and journeys along the way, we ended up, uh, getting to the place where I started a ministry, um, first with a pregnancy resource center as the education director. And that was, uh, gosh, 16 years ago. And then, um, started, uh, project 619. And so with project 619, uh, what are what is the main emphasis there just to is it to just educate uh, on like a biblical sexual ethic um, you are you guys addressing different issues what are the different resources that you guys have are you guys doing like conferences what all uh, is happening there yeah definitely and and I gave you the really shortened version of <laughs> project 619 uh, but yeah we we are a biblical sexual integrity program is what we say we, we promote biblical sexual integrity and our, our desire is to work with family schools churches empowering equipping encouraging conversations around sex sexuality relationships gender uh, because what we know is that they're not conversations that are taking place but what I have seen is when those conversations take place uh, there is wonderful opportunity for us to not only talk about sex but every other aspect that is influenced by sex or that sex will influence. And so it, it's, a, it's an incredibly vast conversation that we just never step into. And so I, I have always seen that the ministry of Project 619 is to uh, engage in the conversations around sex so that's not just a rhetoric of just don't do it, but it's rather a conversation of how do we align our sexual life and flourish within God's grand story. And that's always been what we've done. And we've done that with families. We've done that with schools. And we, we've had the privilege of doing that with churches. So you, you say you've done that with schools. You guys have made inroads into uh, some of the public schools that are by you? Not just even biased. Yes, biased, but also beyond. We, hmm. we, are, uh, we have individuals that are presenting our material uh, in schools throughout our region, but then, um, you know, you, you can go over to Montana, you can go down into Oregon, you can go over to Maryland, you can go to Michigan, Pennsylvania. Th there are many people that are using our curriculum, and, and the curriculum is meant to be a supplemental to an overall comprehensive approach that a school district takes. Right. Uh, years ago, I just realized that um, I, I don't want to be creating curricula that, it, you know, is vast and wide and we're going into anatomy what I knew we could do and we could do well was talk about abstinence, 
um, but more sexual integrity, like how we how our how we use our bodies with integrity, how we make better choices. Uh, the other thing that I saw that was a huge gap, uh, and is still to this day is a huge gap. Is no one was talking about pornography in the public schools, and so mm. we doing that. And then um, we also started talking about sexual coercion, sexual assault long before anyone else was talking about it because uh, we just saw the the incredible need to make that happen. I think many of uh, the listeners and my, myself included growing up uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was like the purity movement. Um, and I know Caitlin Beatty, I've heard her refer to like it was kind of the sexual prosperity gospel that if you if you wait until marriage to have sex, then you will have the best sex life ever, um, that things will be great immediately. All you have to do is be obedient to God before then. And um, a lot of that was probably even based on fear tactics and uh, th- stuff like that. And and then go figure, a lot of people who either did listen to that or didn't, they found that it left wanting, that it wasn't uh, all that was promised. So how is what you guys are doing, how does it differentiate um, from kind of that purity movement of the 90s and the 2000s that I think so much of young adults now, um, parents now, um, and even ex uh, those who would call themselves like ex-evangelicals are kind of uh, responding uh, against. How are you guys different from from that? Yeah. And you're pointing out some really great things that, that I mean, really, uh, I, I mourn. Um, I, the reason I even began talking about this, it grew out of some of my frustration with the way the church was discussing it back in the late 90s and the early 2000s. You know, I've, I've now been doing this work for almost 20 years. And a lot of the conversation bore out of the very fact that I was really frustrated as someone that was sexually active in the church that loved Jesus. Uh, but the conversations just really didn't meet me where I was at. And in many ways, left me feeling um, not guilty, but shame-based. Like, I just felt like, man, I, I am bad. I am not good. And it, it, it uh, that feeling led to, if that's the way I'm, I'm going to feel with this, then I either need to make a decision here. Like, what, like I need to really go to Scripture and see what it says. Because if that's what it says, then my whole idea of what we've talked about is is wrong or we're just talking about this in a way that is not really lining up with or lighting up the very conversation around sex that I think scripture gets to and that's what I found I found that there was something really beautiful and I think that the I, I always say this I I deeply appreciate what the early purity movement was trying to do I think I think that what it was trying to do was start a conversation that was not happening and it was trying to get the church and the the world around it to open up to the fact that there was a better way to engage these conversations. And so I just think that, that individuals that were early architects of this have taken a lot of um, fire in recent um, years around this conversation. I, I, I kind of choose to say I'm grateful for what mm. they've done, but maybe what we what we need to do is do some rethinking, um, some retooling, some restructuring. Uh, we always say as a as a ministry that we are not a purity movement. Um, that that is not what we are about. We are about talking about sexual integrity, and what we mean by that is 
we know that many of the parents that we are talking to now, many of them came out of that purity movement. Um, many young adults are responding to it. I mean, you you mentioned ex-evangelicals. Like, there are a number of individuals that are leaving the church because of the church's failure to engage this conversation well. They're they're hurt. They aren't getting questions answered. And they want to be able to engage this. And so that's what our ministry has really been trying to do is like, how, how do we step into this and be, be faithful to what we see in, in, in the Bible, but also respond to what we've seen. And what we, we, we've tried to do is speak honestly. Um, you know, you're seeing individuals like Joshua mm. Harris that's coming out and uh, he's not only renounced his book, he's renounced his faith. But I, I actually think that you've got to hold on to both of those. You've got to be able to understand that there is something tied to each. And I, I actually think when you you just simply make decisions based upon principle, when it just becomes rules and regulations, eventually the white knuckling it, like I can wait, it it, it dies out. Like it, there's just nothing to it because it hasn't really penetrated the heart. Right. And. I really believe that if we're going to see success and we're really going to see individuals living out a biblical sexual ethic that honors God, it's got to penetrate the heart. Yeah. It's, it's got to be something that changes from the inside out and that uh, you're living in a totally different way. I'll say this. this one of the biggest things was I recognized this um, at, at about 22, 23, where I had been sexually active. I wanted to honor God. I still wanted to have sex. Now, in the purity movement, like it would have just said, don't even think about sex, just wait. But for me, I, what I learned is I actually needed to understand that I am a sexual being, that I am sexual, that my sexuality is very real, and that God gave it to me as a gift. I also needed to, to understand that throughout Scripture, there are large portions of it where some of its main characters are lamenting, are are saying what they feel, but also praising God in the same breath. They're saying, God, I don't know what to do here. Why are you not showing up? But I trust, mm. I believe, right? And I had to learn to do that same thing with my sexuality. Like I I, I used to have to be able to say, okay, I, I Lord, I, I, I actually want to have sex right now. But Lord, I know because of what you have done in my life over these last few years that you are real, that you love me, and I want to honor you with my body. And that changed. That that changed the way I lived my life. That changed the way that I structured my relationships. It just the way I engaged the world around me had a whole new lens. Yeah, yeah. I think that perspective shift is uh, is a powerful one, an important one, uh, and not. I don't know how um, natural it is for us to think that way, uh, and not even natural. We're not conditioned to think about our sexuality that way uh, oftentimes in the church. And we, I, so I'm a youth pastor as, um, as well. And we actually just finished up a, uh, like a four or five week series where we talked about marriage and sexuality. And, um, we, one of the things that I said, because when you talk to teenagers from sixth grade through 12th grade about sex in church, uh, it can feel awkward almost immediately, uh, both for me and them. Um, but what I said was everyone else is talking about this, but God is the one who came up with sex. 
like sex was God's idea and sexuality that we are sexual beings. That's not by accident. That is that is something that God instilled and created before the fall. Um, and so we need to allow God's voice to have a say in our sexuality and not um, kind of what I think is either some in some places explicitly taught, but a lot of times it's implicitly received that sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. Now you're married, sex is good. And that switch is hard for people. There's a lot of shame that people bring into their marriage relationships because what is ingrained in them is sex is bad, sex is bad. And they thought they could make that switch to, okay, now it's good, but they can't. Um, so to I think that's an important uh, shift to make that my sexuality is not bad. Uh, God does put parameters around it um, and how it should be expressed and when it should be expressed, but it's not inherently an evil thing or a dirty thing. Uh, it's a God-given gift, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, here's here's you said something in there that that with me and the ministry, it's a little bit triggering, and it's just this: it's that. You know, it's a little bit awkward talking to sixth and seventh and eighth graders and talking to sixth and seventh and eighth graders, period, <laughs> is awkward. Sometimes. But but what I what I what I think is it should be no the conversation around sex should be no more awkward than um, the conversation we're having around what it means to be a disciple of Christ. I, I mean, we we have made it so we've made it so difficult to engage in these conversations because we don't engage them anywhere right. else. And, and, and I think my heart has always been as a ministry that we're, and, and you'll see, we're reaching so many different audiences, but the reason is we need to have this multifaceted conversation so that in 10 years, a church that has really been diving into this, working with its parents, working with its leadership, working with its youth has this really beautiful, uh, centrical, <laughs> that's not even a word, but, uh, uh, this 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 conversation that is really centered on Christ, but it's happening through all the different audiences, and that just yeah. doesn't happen. But if we were in the home having the conversation constantly, it's not just one big talk; it needs to be constant. And then in the church, we were engaging it honestly and not like shooing it away. Like right. we don't want to talk. About like, um, I, I, I think if we actually just dived into this and I think that this generation, Gen Z specifically, but I think millennials, millennials have just gotten tired of us not talking about it. Gen Z it has already kind of made its own decision. And so we need to be discussing mm -hmm. this. Like we need to be diving into it, but a lot of times it's our own stuff and it's our own ill-conceived ideas and it's our fear that doesn't allow us to do that. And I actually think we have great opportunity, probably more than ever before, to step in. And when we're having these conversations, I actually don't just think we're talking about sex. I said this earlier, but I actually think we're having tremendous opportunity to talk mm. about the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with what you're saying there. And I think uh, part of why we, uh, we have done in our youth group, we have done, you know, series every year, one way or another, um, and touched on it, it through other topics. Um, but we kind of faced it more head on than we ever have before, because a lot of what you're saying that this is something that we need to address that we can't uh, shy away from, we can't talk about in, 
kind of these vague generalities because it's not being talked about that way in our broader culture. And so we need to be willing to address this thing that God has created and given to us uh, with with boldness, uh, without shame, without guilt, um, so that we're not we're preparing our kids for the world that they're living in. Um, you had mentioned there that it's not just like a one-time thing. Uh, and I know like for me, uh, I did not have any conversations with my parents about sex. Um, there was like a awkward, vague attempt to have like the talk when it was too late to have the talk. Um, and I, Jonathan McKee's book, more than just the talk, uh, is an excellent resource, but, um, can you give like just general guidelines if there are parents listening or uh, teachers or youth pastors who are with kids of different ages, what are like age appropriate ways to address this? Uh, not just when they're, you know, 15, 16, but as they're growing up from five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is uh, check out our resource drive time. Uh, myself and Walt Mueller uh, put together a free podcast. It's every episode's shorter than uh, 12 minutes. It's meant to be listened to on the go. And we dive into this and we have uh, age appropriate resources in our episode notes. So that would be the first thing I would say, because that will give you a much more robust answer than what I'm about to give. Uh, but I will say that from zero to five, zero to six, your main goal is just to be talking about the beauty of the body. Like there is something so great about the way God made each of our children. One of the things that I do in our house, so I have a six, four and two year old. And the thing that I want them to understand one is that, uh, uh, our boys have a penis, uh, their, their sister, our, my daughter has a vagina. Uh, I, we speak those words clearly, right. plainly. We, we don't punish people when, or our, our kids, when they, you know, say something like my penis, right? Like yeah. they, like we want them to understand as a part of God's beautiful intent that that is the way that God made them. Like that is, it's biological, but it's also beautiful. Uh, but then we also, in that then gives us opportunity to talk about uh, who has the um, authority or ability um, to who touches that, right? And we say, you are in control of your body. You are the one that makes the decisions about who, uh, uh, you know, helps you clean up, especially when you're able to then make that decision. Right. So I always say mom and dad, right? And then we always ask them, who else do you think would be safe? Oh, well, our nanny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Megan. Um, who else? And, and so we kind of, we talk about that because what we want them to understand is that there are going to be touches that are appropriate. And then there are touches that we don't want that, uh, to have happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, other friends that have done this and done this successfully have even, um, been able to allow for their kids to essentially read conversations. Um, one, one of my, my friends, um, he had a son in school, was a first grader was talking to one of his friends and actually found out through a series of conversations, he, the, the seven-year-old, the first grader really didn't understand what was going on, but was like, it's a really weird dad. My, my friend has th uh, this thing and th it seems like someone's touching them hmm. weird. And it ended up being abuse. Like right. they ended up being out about abuse. And it was specifically because this child had been having this conversation in their home and was able to then read the other conversation hmm. of, 
what was going on. And I think that's one of the most important things we can do, because I think that's where the conversation of sex really starts, is where uh, a child knows that they have uh, authority over their body, that it's a beautiful thing in the way that they've been made, which then then jump jump frogs into all the other conversations. Because what you've done is you've become the authority, or uh, one of the ways I say it now is you've become Google to your children. Right. You are the first and the last place that you go to find out information. So when they start getting into 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and especially now, we're finding like the average age where a child really is going to ask uh, the question of what is sex, like where they really want to dive into it a little bit, uh, is around 8. They're 8, 9 is kind of the average. Uh, You you still have some peripheral like 10, 11, uh, but typically it's it's right around 8 that they're going to start asking questions. Now, that isn't when you like get out your college science book and start saying, here's, here's what sex is. Right. But I think you build up that conversation. You, you think you, you talk about the beauty of what sex is, how it's shared in marriage, especially as Christians, we've got to be able to not only use science, but also use scripture and talk about the stories in scripture. And um, I always say, don't make the first conversation clinical, but you will build to that very quickly because you're building trust with your child. Right. Because you're answering the questions. And typically the first time they ask what is sex, they don't want the clinical answer. Right. They're not the clinical answer. Yeah. Um, but they are wanting to have some some honest responses. And I think that if they've started asking that, they're going to ask more questions. So use that first one to really kind of build a, a biblical reference of what that is. What, how do we see sex? Um, what does that look like? And then you're going to start diving into the clinical. You need to dive into the clinical because that is going to be helpful. I think one of the things that often happens is uh, parents, especially Christian parents, are really afraid to dive into this conversation um, because they don't have the tools. They're not really equipped. But there are so many different places that you can dive into and go look. That That's where I think a parent can go and look at Google and get some <laughs> right. Because then they can come back and start speaking to their child. When your child gets to 12, 13, 14, that's really your, where you're going to start reinforcing a lot of what's already um, been said. But you're going to dive deeper into it. I think you're also then going to start talking about the realities in their own life. Hmm. Now. Here's the one thing that I have not discussed that needs to be discussed, and that's pornography. Yeah, um, I I think you start the conversations with pornography when they're young, and here's how that conversation starts. So my son started kindergarten this year. A few days before kindergarten, he and I we we do this regularly where we go out, we have a a, a dad son date, and we go hang out and. We do a variety of things, but um, we just went and got, uh, he got chocolate milk. I got coffee and we sat down and we started talking and I wanted him to understand that there, he's stepping into an environment where uh, he's in a public school. There might be kids that have their own phone and on that they have pictures and they potentially have access to the internet. Um, and I said, you might come across images of other naked people. And what have we learned about our body? And, you know, the thing that he knows is we've learned that our bodies are good. Our bodies are beautiful. Um, and and when I what I let him know is that you're going to see images. Uh, you potentially might see images of other people that are naked that you don't know. They're not family. They're not, they're, they're not your siblings. And if you see those, I want you to tell dad right away. I want you to tell mom right away. Now, notice, I didn't say good, bad. I, mm. I, I try to refrain from good and bad images because... 
um, I very easily could have said a bad image is a naked image, which then could potentially cause them to think, oh, well, then you've been telling me that my naked body is good, but actually maybe my naked body is bad. Right. right? And so, so what I want them to understand is that if they see naked images, I just want them to tell me right away. And then as they get older, you're going to be able to have that conversation more and more. It's just like the conversation around sex. You're building that conversation. So at 12 or 13, 14, you're now having some pretty honest conversations around pornography. Has it popped up? Have you seen it? Um, what do we do? What have we decided as a family if you see it? And there's there's typically strategies with that. Um, and so I, I, I think that with each age, you're just kind of building upon a, a, a foundation that you started building in their early years. Yeah. Yeah. That, all of that is really good. Um, and so the resource drive time, I'll definitely, I'll link to that in our show notes as well. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I believe it was Jonathan McKee in his book, more than just the talk that he mentioned was when we, when we make, uh, sex, this one time conversation that we have to have with our kids, that puts a lot of pressure on that conversation. Um, and you do have to, you have to cover all of your bases, right? So you do have to get clinical right away the first time you're talking about it. Uh, and I think one of the things about this ongoing conversation uh, that is helpful is as the parent, it kind of takes the pressure off of you because you don't have to answer every possible question. You can start talking about the body early and then you can take questions as they come. Um, one of the things that uh, advice that has been given to me from older parents is, um, to if you're not sure how to answer the question, ask a follow-up question before you even answer. Because then what is it that they're actually asking, right? If they say, what is sex? They might not be looking for a clinical answer right now. Um, so what is it that they're actually looking for and, and trying to answer? Um, you earlier on at the beginning, you talked about how you've gone into scripture and uh, how Project 619, you want to give a, a biblical view of sexuality. And I've heard this from a couple different people, um, John Mark Comer, Preston Sprinkle, that they've said that the church largely has taken the world's view of sex and we've just placed it into marriage. Um, do you agree with that? Well, I, I think on a, a level, yes, I would agree with what, what, with what Preston and John say. I would also say that we have taken what the culture has defined as sex and simply said mm, no. Yeah. Um, so th tell me more about that then. Um, how how do you think the culture has generally defined sex? And then what is the, uh, I think so many times the church can, that you just said, the church says no. I think the church can define their view of sexuality in the negative, right? So not this, not that, not this, not then, not at this point of life. Um, so how do we frame it in a positive view of sex? Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say in response to the first part of that question, it, the culture has typically defined sex for the church. So the way the culture has defined it probably recently is uh, as long as there's consent, you're okay. So you can do whatever with whomever, however you want, as long as you have consent, as long as no one is... Uh, uh, engaging in a practice that they did not consent or that they consented to. If they did not consent to it, then that's not appropriate. And so what we have done as a church is we've said, well, no, that's not it. That's not, no, we don't, we don't do that. Absolutely not. And I think that that's put us in a place where 
now no one wants to engage our sexual ethic because we've always been about what we're against rather than right. what we're for. One of the things that uh, Dale Keene in his book, Sex in the Eye World, talks about, and he speaks about the consent issue, but he also goes further. He goes that really we lost a lot of credibility when when the marriage around or the, the debate around gay marriage started coming out and many churches started coming out against gay marriage, but never really defined what their sexual ethic was. Um, because the first time that anyone outside of the church ever heard what we were uh, standing for when it came to our sexual ethic was really something that we were standing against. So the the culture should be the one that says no, but rather we're the one that right. is saying no. And and I think that we have wonderful opportunity to be able to point to something and say, yes, this is it. This is what sex is. Let's put aside what the culture is saying. Let us let us look at the beauty that we find revealed in scripture. That there is something so incredibly powerful that it goes beyond anything we've ever talked about. So I'll, I'll just, let me say this, because uh, then I'll also answer this question too, because this, as I dive into how we would arc that story or share that uh, ingredient, I, I want to respond to what even Preston and, and John say, because I would agree that that we have essentially just made marriage and sex per equal. They're, they're partners. Like sex is only the same that's that's ever, ever uh really enjoyed in in marriage and, and marriage is the culmination really in some ways of our faith and that's just a really weak way of both talking about marriage and talking about sex and not in any way engage our sexuality and uh what sex really is even meant to be and and i think that's a huge failure i i think uh the church uh, really needs to be able to start not just talking uh, differently about marriage, but I think it needs to start engaging the conversations around singleness. I think it's starting to, but um, we have marginalized our single brothers and sisters. Um, they they have been on the fringes. Just speaking personally, so I was, uh, I shared that I was sexually active 16 to 21, started over. I, I didn't get married until I was 34. I'm 43 now. I was single for a lot of my life and early in my career doing this. Uh, there are at least two conferences that I can think of where I was um, I, I was invited and then uninvited because I was not married. Because, because I was coming to speak about sex and sexuality as a single person and they didn't find that appropriate. And I, I still to this day find that incredibly offensive. Like, wouldn't you want someone that's single – to be there to talk about the very thing, I'm living it out. Like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not just someone that's saying it. Like I'm living this out, and 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 I think that it's representative of what I've seen. I think that a lot of times when you look to leadership in our churches, it's most often married people. Um, uh, I, I heard it said this way: for every 295 books in the Christian sphere um, on marriage, there's only one book written on singleness. And when we look at the data, we're, we're at we should at least be at yeah. half and half um, because I think there's a lot of resources out there for our married uh, friends, um, brothers and sisters. There's not a lot out there for singles. And and I, I, I just I, I advocate often for my single friends. I, I, I have just come to find that they're just rich and, and many uh, resources and gifts. And I just don't think the church uses that enough. So when I then dive into the, that, that then challenges me to, um, or I guess that's shaped. I, I shouldn't say it challenges me. I, I would say that all of this is shaped by the way that I read scripture. 
Um, and you, if you, if any of your listen, listen listeners have um, engaged with any of CPYU Center for Parent Youth uh, Understanding Walt uh, Mueller's material or our podcast that we do together, uh, Youth Culture Matters, um, we dive into this often. But what often gets missed uh, is this grand story. Um, we, the grand story, you very uh, it comes in four parts. Uh, four, uh, it's like a drama in four parts. It's something that is often um, discussed um, in church, but we don't always call it this. But you know, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and creation is this part of the story that that really gives us God's good intent. And sex is a part of that story. I always say that we were sexual before we were sinful because. This three is the fall. That is where we see sin enter into this story, right? Sin is a possibility in the garden. It does not become reality until Genesis 3. And so what we find is creation, fall, and then you move to redemption, right? Jesus and then restoration, new heaven, new earth. I'm simplifying it for, yeah. for listeners. But uh, that is the grand story. And that first part of that story, creation, I don't know if we've spent enough time talking about it. Because what I think we do, because when we start at creation and God's good intent, that frames our conversation. Um, with however we see something, whatever we're diving into, whatever as a pastor or if you are um, a, a cook, like whatever you start with, whatever whatever ingredient, whatever thing that you start with, kind of builds upon the rest. It, it helps us frame what we're going to say, how we're going to do it. I think what we've done is we've limited God's grand story to God's smaller story, which is just fall and redemption. We've simply just engaged in sin, don't do it, and then Jesus, you're forgiven. And I just think that that is um, a, 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 a it's a very limiting view of scripture when it comes to sex because we're not even seeing god's good in, uh, intent we're not seeing that one god invented sex god made us sexual that god gave us sex for relationship we're not seeing any of these different dynamics we're not seeing the power that's in sex we're only seeing the sin of sex and then we move to but jesus forgives you if you make a mistake or jesus is always there jesus yay jesus it's like the the sunny school answer we're not getting to the place that it leads us Right, like th this beautiful place of restoration. What it's all for? It's it's not just what we're saved from, but it's also what we're saved for. And so, when we take the grand story, all four parts, we really allow for us to start in Genesis and move towards Revelation. I actually think that it reshapes the way. It, at least it shaped it reshaped the way that I started to engage in this many years ago. And I think that it gives us a, a, an ability to engage in a conversation that is that is uh, looking to what we're for rather than what we're against. I've started saying that it really allows for us to have a conversation that points to how we uh, our lives can flourish sexually as we align ourselves with God and God's grand story. Yeah, and I think that is such an important uh, way to approach this because uh, – while certainly there have been uh, organizations and individual churches and individual Christians who have viewed sexuality that way for a long time, that is certainly not how we have been perceived by the broader culture. Uh, like you said earlier, that the first time our sexual ethic was really on display is when the church spoke out against same-sex marriage. And so uh, we have been defined by the things we are against. And it's on us. It's on. Uh, it's the work of Christians and the church to uh, to change that narrative and to uh, 
uh, talk about what we are for when it comes to God's sexuality. And uh, like you said, that needs to begin at the beginning with God's good intent for sex. What are like the battlegrounds uh, that are being fought uh, maybe most heavily right now, especially with uh, our late teens and our young adults who are um, they're physically and emotionally, uh, physically they are ready for uh, sexual activity, whether they are married or not. They're getting competing ideas from the world and from the church. Um, what are like the most important or most fierce battlegrounds that they're facing right now? And what are some tools then that they could use uh, to help them in that battle? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is pornography. Pornography is an epidemic. Uh, I think that we have to start engaging honestly with what it does to the mind, what it does to the, the soul. Uh, if we don't get to the heart of how this is reshaping our perceptions and the way we act sexually, then we are going to have a tremendous, tremendous issue as the years go on. We're already starting to see signs of this, uh, but I think that if we can engage this honestly now, especially as a church, then I think that we've got a great deal of hope. But if we don't deal with this now, I always say that the next issue is going to be the conversation around having sex with robots, because that's where we're moving. Um, and in many ways, Japan yeah, is already say, there. To some who may be less informed or whatever, that may have even sounded like a joke or something, but we're very literally heading in that direction. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Japan, we are already there. And uh, if you want to look it up, Houston, Texas was one of the first places that it's opening a brothel, uh, um, <laughs> excuse me, with um, robots, a place to go and have sex with robots. So this is a reality. And it's just because um, we have moved so far down the line with our addiction to pornography that this is where we're heading. I would say the second thing is, is we've got to engage in the conversations around the LGBTQ plus uh, uh, conversation. We've got to, to do this well. And it starts with us having a better understanding of God's grand story, but we also have to understand and see what Jesus does as he engages this conversation. And not just that conversation, but how he engages others uh, in the midst of their sin. Um, if we don't address this conversation and do it well, and I, I think that we're starting to see signs of that, this is why I, I appreciate people like Preston Sprinkle that are right. diving into this and trying to have a posture um, and a good biblical sexual ethic to be able to engage this. Um we have to engage in this conversation because if we don't, we're just going to have see we're going to see more and more people start to walk away from the church because they're really frustrated with the way or the the lack of us being able to engage it and engage it well. Um, and I would say the third thing we've already discussed it, but I would say that um, we need to to have a better understanding of singleness and marriage. There is something so radically beautiful about singleness and marriage that just so often gets missed. And I will say that one of my favorite books from this last year was called The Idol of Marriage or The Breaking of the Marriage Idol um, by Cutter Calloway. And um, it, it just kind of builds a beautiful reference for what marriage is. And I think it also gives us some tools to understand the power of what it means to be single, the beauty of what it means to be single. Paul talks about uh, in his letter to the Corinthian church that, that his singleness was essentially a gift. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that when I was single at times, it didn't feel like a gift. But when I look back now, I know for a fact it was a tremendous gift. I, I was able to do so much in my uh, in the ministry God was, was providing, uh, opening for me uh, then, that I'm 
really unable to do now as a as a uh, married man yeah. with three kids. Like it's just I'm limited. And so I think we need to, those are the three areas where I think that we need to be engaging and engaging them. Awesome. I think that is a a great jumping off point. And uh, this is such a a huge conversation, one that uh, is never ending and probably will be (laughs) never ending as humans. I don't think we'll ever get this, uh, the sexuality thing right. But I appreciate you, the work of Project 619 and CPYU and so many others who are uh, trying to lead this conversation well and uh, point us in the direction that we need to go. So thanks uh, for your work and thanks for your time. Thank you again to Jason Soshnick of Project 619. Thank you for listening. This one was one with a bunch of resources in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. And just thank you again for listening, not just this time, but any of the times that you've listened. Thanks for making the inaugural Thinking Out Loud year a good one. And have a happy new year. And we'll be back in 2019 with more great content. Until then.